This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. Okay, think of the least likely guest you would ever expect to hear on a show called Zombie Mum. Yes, I'm introducing the most energetic, full of life, bright, jumping bean father of two that I could possibly find. Joe Wicks is not a zombie mum at all. In fact, he is very much an alive dad. Lockdown happened and Joe absolutely blew up, bursting with life onto our screens with PE with Joe, where he essentially gave families a zero frills, zero excuses, daily fun workout for free every single weekday morning. It was in these times that Joe became a real tonic, an everyday cape-wearing superhero, offering a shining torch in all the darkness and fear surrounding us. PE with Joe was informal, silly, accessible and lovable. It's core about movement, family time and play, but its sentiment and motivation is from a place much more raw than that. It's from a place much closer to home and ultimately from a place of kindness. Joe understands firsthand the connection between physical and mental health and how crucial it is to take care of our whole selves, especially when going through something challenging. Whenever I hear Joe talk in interviews, I'm floored. He's relatable, open, and his take on mental health is so refreshing, compassionate and empathetic. He talks of his parents' experience with mental illness and addiction and how it felt being on the front lines as a kid, how this impacted his childhood and informed his approach now as a parent to Marley and Indy and partner to their mum, Rosie. Being a parent that does hold fears that my own psychological collapse could have affected Jet negatively, it was so reassuring and comforting to see Joe's resilience and forgiveness. And so it is my great pleasure to introduce Joe Wicks. Thank you so much for doing this, Joe. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. I just wanted to say as well, having a guy on this podcast is so important to me as well. This is actually a human being thing. You know, this is for everybody. Bringing a a young person into the world is a massive life change that affects not just the mum. Definitely. It's about teamwork, isn't it? And, you know, just being there for each other. I mean, Rosie, like, it's so amazing during the nights and stuff because when I think about what she does and what she goes through like it must be so much more challenging it's draining you know because it's cumulative isn't it like broken sleep it accumulates in the body and then then it makes you super sensitive and stuff and you know i wouldn't be the body coach and doing what i am and i wouldn't have been pee with joe and doing all that if i didn't have rosie like there you know i'm always saying to her how much i appreciate every like night shift she does every time she wakes up and feeds the baby because it means that i can wake up and like, i can do what I need to do and, and do the workouts and be energizing. And then when I get the chance like on the weekends, I, I, tr- I do everything I can to help her get more sleep. I always say like, 
I'll take the kids for a walk around the block or whatever, just get back to sleep for now. And it's those little moments, like just sort of paying back all those broken nights sleep. So I do try my best to do that as best as much as I can. So you said that lockdown, you were sometimes a bit of a zombie. The lockdown, it went really quick because I was doing those every day, like Monday to Friday, 9am. And so there were days when I wasn't in the mood for it. And if Marley had been up through the night, you know, teething and whatnot, it's, I see now how much like lack of sleep and sleep deprivation erodes your patience, your tolerance, it affects so many things. And so it is so challenging as a parent with two kids or even, you know, one who's not sleeping well, because you have to get up and like do your day and go about your business and stuff. So I now realize that the most important thing for our mental health is sleep. It's so important. And we often go, oh, I'd just rather watch a couple of hours of Netflix tonight and just go to bed at 11. But I've started going to bed at like half eight, nine o'clock now just to give myself a head start because then I'm getting to sleep early and I'm getting more sleep and I feel so much happier for it. And a lot of people just get into that routine of, you know, five hours sleep, six hours sleep, where maybe it's not enough. I think you need more than that. I'm so happy you've tapped into that because I was going to talk to you about sleep because sleep is a massive trigger of mine. And actually, I mean, I wasn't naive when I went into having a baby, but I did just sort of think I'm really good with kids. You know, I write for children as my normal everyday job. I'm a big sister. I've nannied like my whole life. That's fine. I'm not going to say it's a doddle. I mean, the dads I've even spoken to, I have got friends now, dads who have gone on to have postnatal depression or just people who can relate on some level to it not being what you think it is. And the only people that ask you how it actually is are pregnant people. So you just don't tell the truth. So the conspiracy goes on because it really isn't, maybe it was for you, but it certainly wasn't for me, a kind of domesticated lullaby in white muzzy cloths. And it, a child forces you to look in the mirror, right? Yeah, for sure. And definitely. think, who am I? What happened to me? And what do I want to put on the blueprint of them? Do I want them to be the same way as me? And it is trauma, however you look at it. Even if it hasn't happened to you, especially if you've written a birthing plan and it looks nothing like that. Or maybe you'll think, oh, I should have done that. Did I do enough? Because I think partners can feel quite redundant in the birthing experience as well. Did it go how you thought it was going to go? Well, I was at the birth of both, you know, Marley and Indian I. I loved it. I loved being there. I kept thinking I was going to get involved. I was so fascinated by it. And I was just, I thought, what an amazing thing that's happening. So I was, Rosie was in the birthing pool for a little while. And then she had gas and air, but she didn't have any epidural or anything during for, for Indy. But when it came to Marley, she had an epidural. And it was so strange because it really like changed the energy in the room because she was so calm. She was like on her phone, like watching it Netflix. <laughs> and it, it was weird because before it was like quite intense, you know, the the pain and that was coming and, and the waves but then yeah so we i've had two experiences the quite high energy one and then the sort of epidural which is a lot more um chilled if you like yeah it's funny isn't it? everyone has such a different experience of birth and with parenting don't they and you think you're going to feel this automatic overnight love with the baby you're going to meet it and you're going to go oh that's me and we see it in this kind of romanticized tv version of films where it's like the mum's laughing and crying and a lot and the baby's on her chest i've done it oh my god this miracle and actually, you can feel quite detached. Like I remember a person saying to me when I was pregnant, remember, it's a stranger. And I was like, that is so harsh. What a dickhead. What are you saying it's a stranger for? Like, it's not a stranger. It's my baby. And then they come out and he was, even though I was overdue, he's underweight. They're hanging him in the sky. He looks like a kind of screwed up livid goblin, like demanding milk. And I feel like I've already let him down before I've even begun. And then I get hospitalised and it's this process of trying to understand him. And then obviously now his fabrics are exactly ours. It's like you're cut for exactly from the same cloth, but it does take a while to get there. And as you say, when you're all your basic fundamental human foundations are being mauled, your sleep, you can't eat properly, you have, you're speaking to your partner sometimes or people, your work um, in kind of bare minimum kindness because you just haven't got the capacity to give people what you need. You are 
run through basically yeah and then have two in the mix as well like, i know what the hell indy's a good little sleeper but marley because he's had a bit of trouble like, he was basically he was blind for the first three months of his life he couldn't see anything we didn't know what was going True. on but he was always so upset when you put him down he was just really crying he would never make eye contact with you so turns out he had this thing called delayed visual maturity so one day like out of nowhere his eyes just turned on he could see everything but before that the first few months yeah, we were like, he could definitely be blind, but he's, he's ended up with amazing vision. He's perfect, but he seems to wake up a little bit more for feeds. And even though you're waking up for sort of 10 or 15 minutes, or it might be longer, it's it's so hard to get up in the morning and be like energized and be Mr. Motivator. And for me, you know, I have to be on camera filming. Like my job's quite physical. So I have to dig extra deep on those days where like, I've had broken sleep. Sure. I had no idea about that. Why did that come about? There's no way of knowing really. It's just, he was three weeks early and he was in hospital for 10 days. He had a bit of an infection. So he's just a bit of a tiny little baby that was a bit unwell. And then it may be like something in that process made it meant his eyes didn't switch on, but it was almost like a light bulb turned on. And then as soon as he could see, his energy completely changed. He could see you were there. He wasn't scared every time you put him down. But you had to have him attached to you for the first three months. So that is tough, you know, more so for Rosie, who was breastfeeding him. But every time I tried to get near him and cuddle him, it was like he was just screaming. It was really hard to bond with him in the early, oh early months. Oh, my goodness. So difficult. And as you say, when he finally lit up it just happened like that for one morning he just could see yeah and he can see right across the room like that's unbelievable before he used to look to the corner of his eyes he used to look up and he just would never make eye contact and we were like oh maybe there's something with his eyes and we took him to the doctor and they said yeah he can't see he's blind as a bat at the minute <gasps> but it might come but it might they were like it might come or it might not so blind as a bat. we kind of we just accepted that you know he might actually be blind oh my god it's a lot because we were told Jet was going to be, um, they said chronic it, when he was born. They said he's going to be chronically small. And I was already so sleep deprived and high because I my labour did not go how I thought. It was a complete casserole of nonsense. I had in my mind like he was going to be like Tom Fum, like really small. like really how, big, small. how much did he weigh then when he was Just born? Just under five pounds. But I was two weeks overdue. So he kind of was skeletal. I thought he'd be like a prized pumpkin. And it was like his skin had kind of fattened up and then it had shrunk. So you could see he had this all extra skin on him, which I think wow. already is what triggered me thinking that, right, you have in your mind like what the idea of like a womb is like and you think it's kind of a velvety sanctuary for like thriving and growing. And I felt like, oh, is mine just like this cold, mean dungeon? I should have basically been high risk because like, why was he not taken out on his due date why did I not have an emergency c-section and get him out so just those two weeks where I think I was bouncing on a yoga ball and eating noodles and thinking I was just like making him fat and actually he was starving you may have heard of the podcast juicy scoop wondered what it is why aren't you listening well I'm its host created it been doing it for seven years I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. How did you work through the psychosis? Like, what's the therapy for it? Is it counselling and stuff? And does it, does it take a long time to get out of that mindset? 
Yeah, it does. It's really scary. I've never been on an altered state of reality. I mean, I get a little bit drunk. You've probably seen me a little bit drunk, but I never get there. I've always have an element of control, which is what I was going to talk to you about as well. Something snapped, basically, when everything happened. It was took hospitalisation, so I actually woke up like on my first Mother's Day. Jet was three weeks in a psychiatric unit, completely confused, alone. I thought I wasn't sure if I was in prison or if I was in an asylum or... Um, yeah, and then it would kind of... And they didn't have space for me at mother and baby unit, so I was taken to general psych. So I was kind of in group therapy all day long with people suffering from bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, personality disorder, alcoholism, with a crying baby at home, you know, full milk, and I just had an emergency C-section. So I was a really... Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the greatest time in my life. And then after that, therapy um, plunged into a depression after that, and then um, got better. But writing the book is actually what saved my life. You know, I was so scared of it at first. I was like, I don't want this to infect my life. I don't. I didn't even want to write about it on my laptop because I was like, I don't want it to bleed into my work and taint it with this awfulness. And so I wrote it all on my phone in the end. It felt kind of separate. And like it fictionalised Wow, you wrote, a whole bu- wrote the whole book on your phone? 250,000 words. Yeah, now it's only 80,000 words. But it, every time I'd send a chapter off, I didn't read anything back. I just did it and then I just sent it off and I didn't look back. And then they eventually was like, you ready to see it? And they they showed it to me, what I'd written. And it was just this absolute... I mean, I thought no one's going to want to read this. It was just a manual of depression. But I needed to do that, like getting that off my chest, which is... It's funny, isn't it? You go full cir- circle. You know, you, I thought, I don't want this to be- come into my, my life, my world. But realising that I've probably, without even realising, I've dealt with everything in my life through writing and telling stories, fictionalising it, having separation, removing myself from it. And you probably have found this with your... I mean, I loved hearing you, what's bringing a smile to my face is thinking about you and your little, all that energy that you had. And you've used that as like a tank, as a resource to come back to what you do for your job. The thing that you thought, is this annoying? Is this too much? You know, I'm just being a little kid. Now you're being paid. You've got an MBE for basically being a big kid. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? And I I do believe that in life, you know, we're our happiest when we're purpose-driven and when we're helping others. So... That is my fire. That's my energy. That's my little wave of like positive love that I get through social media and through like my plan and all that that really keeps me going. When I, cause I'm tired. I'm 35. I've been doing workouts forever, but I'm still filming four workouts a day. And yeah, I'm still doing it because I love it. I really do love knowing that there's someone at the end of that camera or sorry, on that screen doing that workout, like in their living room somewhere. And they're going, do you know what? I'm sweating my ass, ass off, but I feel great. And that's enough for me. You know, we're only here for a short time. So I think the more lives you can impact, the more people you can help. Like, you're just going to go out with a bang, aren't you? You're just going to be like, I've done so much in my life. And <laughs> I, it wasn't all just for me. Like, it wasn't just about me and my family, my kids. Like, actually, I've reached more people and I helped others. That's just so great. But what I loved about as well, um, when you were speaking before to the producers of Zombie Mum, you were saying people asking you for advice on parenting because that is like... For me, I'm like now, after everything we went through, I'm just like, we're alive, like we all nearly died. Don't take unsolicited advice, in my opinion, from someone, like everyone's experience is different. So you must get asked so much, especially with your Wean in 15 book about, you know, how to parent or those kind of things. And what do you say? Do you enjoy it, giving advice? It's hard, isn't it? Because everyone's experience as a parent is different. And the weaning journey I went on with Indy, like I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. I wanted to give her the best possible food and I wanted to help her, you know, enjoy food. And, you know, I work with an amazing nutritionist, so I didn't go out on my own and try and like do it all myself. But people want that guidance. You know, weaning a baby is quite scary and quite, you know, nerve wracking. But I just really love 
promoting you know healthy food for kids and families but also promoting kindness and patience and tolerance which is something you have to sometimes practice like for me my reaction to things when i'm stressed is to scream and shout because that's how i was treated as a kid that's my default reaction i've learned that i can choose to react differently even though in my head i'm screaming at indian i just want her to get away from me i just learned to kind of take a breath and think about her feelings and what she's going because she she couldn't communicate as well she's she's good at talking now but and i like sharing that because people think oh my god you can really like change the way you react and so if i learn anything positive that really helps me i just i have this need to want to share it like because I think it could help another parent out there who is stressed or who was shouted as a kid who had doors slammed. You know, I don't want to be that parent that's doing that. So I learn and then I share. It's, it does take intelligence to reflect. Not everybody does that. People make patterns and they just go on and not, you know, this happened to me. So now so and so and so you're breaking the story by doing those little things. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to take that moment and go, no, actually, I didn't like that as a child. That's cool. That's really cool. At first, it's like effort. It's hard to be patient and tolerant and be like you know for me like the instant screaming and shouting really takes my my stress levels shoot up so quick so like in the early days it's difficult because i just couldn't handle it and i just want to walk away but now the more you practice just like reacting differently and having that moment to kind of just pause and breathe and respond differently then it becomes like a bit more habit like you know and so you don't have to be that screaming parent or shouting and slamming doors and running away when things get tough and that's kind of like what I would have done as a kid. And I really know the importance of like demonstrating um, emotional control in front of Indy. Like, so I don't want to scream and shout and react angrily because it, it, it means that she's going to think that's OK. And so I'm really conscious that you are you are teaching them right now how they're going to interact as adults and what they're going to tolerate and think's normal. And so that for me is always on my mind. I'm always thinking about how Indy's perceiving me and how she's learning what the world should be like. And so... Yeah, that really motivates me to want to learn and be the best like dad. People often ask me if I was to get unwell again, would that be something that I would hide from Jet? Which is why I've decided not to have another baby. There's 50% chance of me getting this illness again. It's like the idea of being ill, him seeing me like that. And even just the down days you say when you're ratty or you're tired. Do you show that? to your children those days when you did you is it important for them to see that that can happen and you don't always have to be fun and be bright or do you how do you balance that well I'm always in the house so like we're always together but I think for me like I'm always my happiest when I'm exercising so when I've done some exercise or I've just filmed a workout you know they probably see the best side of me I think when I have periods where I'm not exercising and just eating junk food like I'm probably more grouchy because food has a massive effect on our mood as well if I've had a really long stressful day and I'm walking into the house one thing I do is I, I imagine myself walking into the house and like being in the best mood I can be so that they see the best version of me. Because when I'm at work and doing YouTube, everyone sees the best version of me. But I don't want to walk in the house and be moody and I'll have a moan at Rosie and, you know, look like a miserable guy. Like I want to give them like energetic, you know, happiness. So I do make an effort with it. But there are days where I just want to go upstairs and sleep in the middle of the day. And I do. Like if I get a chance to have a nap, that that really helps me. If I have a quick like half an hour nap, it it re-energizes me and then I can sort of come down and be a lot more, um, yeah, just a lot happier and more patient and stuff. But I'm not 100% happy all the time. That's impossible. When we're really stressed and tired and anxious, we turn to like either food or booze or TV and we distract ourselves. But sometimes it's important to like, you know, have a moment to like look inside as well and do a bit of meditation or just stop and pause rather than like trying to distract yourself from it. Sometimes you've got to let the emotions come out. And as adults, we're told to sort of like, 
hold it down, aren't we? And like push that emotion back down. But the minute you feel any emotion coming out, whether it's happiness or joy or sadness, let it out. You will feel better afterwards. You will feel amazing and feel lighter because of it. And I imagine you learned a lot of these lessons from your own childhood, seeing your parents go through addiction and their mental health issues. What was that like as a child living through that? And how is it looking back now as an adult? Even now, like, I've got no issue talking about my past because it's my journey. It's who I became. You know, it's, it's, it's led me to the person I am today. Being a kid growing up in a house of addiction, you know, it's chaotic. It's unstable. You know, like my dad was in and out of rehab. So one day he'd be clean and he was there. You know, next day he'd be gone for like six months or whatever. And so it's quite as a kid, it was quite confusing, really. I didn't really understand why he couldn't just stop. Like, I just thought, you know, don't you like just want to stop and be there for us? And it was always obviously really hard to understand. But now, you know, my relationship today, my dad's clean and he's been through NA, you know, and he goes to meetings and whatnot. And so we've got a great relationship now. But it was challenging as a kid because you don't know what's going on. You see all your other friends with their mum and dad together in the house. And it was all this. It felt like a really stable, like home life. But for me, it was the opposite. And so I had to navigate through that as a kid, I think. And your mum struggled with her mental health, didn't she, when you were younger? What was that like? So my mum like had really bad OCD. Like she used to clean the house two or three times a day, like proper clean the house. And you know I didn't understand why or why that was something that she did. But we used to have like black carpet. So imagine a black carpet and uh, one little spot of dirt or a little bit of fluff you'd see it. And she didn't want us to hoover with the big bit, you know, the big wide bit. She'd want to see like the little lines, like a colouring pen. So she. Oh, so you to, had to do the hoovering. Oh yeah, I was doing the hoovering. Yeah, so we oh, were hoovering and cleaning our room. The okay, right. Yeah, it's mad, but you know, again, I had a happy childhood, and my yeah. mum and dad, they loved us unconditionally. So even though there was the madness of drug addiction and what comes with that, it was also a very loving home life. And you know, when my dad was there, like we have great memories and stuff, but. It was just obviously the times that he wasn't there, I found it difficult. And how has that informed you as a parent? I mean, it's really made me want to like be present and be loyal and just be there for Rosie and like always keep our family close together and, and you know, just be like a good husband and a good parent and be there to support them because I just feel like I have success, but I'm really fortunate in the sense that my greatest achievement is that I can be with my kids. I can be at home on my phone, you know, doing my Instagram videos and I can just put it down and have dinner and have lunch. So I'm very lucky that I can have a career where I'm not like some, I'm not like a TV celebrity who's always traveling around the world, like away from his family and stuff. I can do all my YouTube and all my Instagram all from like the comfort of my home. So I love that. And it makes me want to be a role model as well, be a positive like male role model for Indy and Marley because I probably didn't have that as a kid. It's just definitely influenced me as a parent. You are a role model. You've just got an MBE. I know. I can't believe that. I mean, if you <laughs> met me as a kid, you'd be like, there's no way he's going to end up doing anything with his life. Because I was just a bit of a a bit of a loose cannon, you know, like disruptive kind of class clown and always distracted, never really focused on anything. So you'd never really expected like just a normal kid from a council house in Epsom. I'm only 35 and... I think it's crazy that I've been given one, but I'm super proud. Which is so amazing because obviously you're this kind of known for like physical and of course we're much more wide awake as people, as humans, as the world is turning. But people always go, oh, it's physical health and mental health. When you've had a kind of mental health problem, I'd never experienced a mental health illness until I lost the actual plot. And then I was like, oh, how was this never taught in school? And yet we're taught about physicalities of ourselves, you know, to eat 
five portions of fruit and veg a day or do this and that. There's this whole other part of health, which is kind of seen as separate. You sort of uh, naively think, well, I certainly did. Oh, you are the person that gets a mental health issue or you're not. I didn't ever think, oh, no, 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 this is a broad spectrum and the two feed into each other, which is why I think it's just so amazing that you're also using your idea of fitness and health well-being to feed into your brain as well. Um, So could you tell us a little bit more about that, what you kind of do to educate others and use your platform, I guess, to sort of teach, talk about mental health too? I really feel like I've gone on a personal journey into this myself and also just from experiencing like clients and testimonials and success stories. When I used to focus on it, it's very much about the fat loss transformation, you know, sign up to my plan and get lean for summer. But when I started to realize that the more important things that everyone is talking about in their testimonials is they feel happier, their mental health's improved and they're more energized, they're like more productive and their relationships are improving. So that's when I really started to realize that the most important thing is that we're happy and we're healthy and we're mentally strong. The physical body image stuff is a secondary goal really because that comes just through consistency, you know. So all I talk about now is exercise to feel good. If you're tired and you're a bit stressed, you know, do a workout. You're going to feel more relaxed and you're going to feel calmer. So it's a massive, it's a release of tension and stress, but also it gives you those post-workout like endorphins and highs. So the message now is all about exercise to feel good, you know, and it's such a powerful thing because people really can find motivation in that more than just like weighing themselves every week and being focused on their image. Speaking about health in general, is there a pressure to stay well, to kind of look well, but also to be talking? You know, I think about this a lot because I get a lot of mums saying, I, I think I'm going through what you are or I've had this or someone close to me. And obviously you have to be careful with the advice you give, of course, and point them in the right direction. But do you feel that you have to always stay on top yourself? Well, I don't know if you saw the other week that I posted a video where I was struggling. I just found out we were going back into those restrictions of lockdown and I was feeling really flat and in that moment I thought if I'm feeling like this now and you know there's got to be someone else out that's feeling the same so I shared this video I didn't really think much of it I just thought I'm going to share it you know it got like a million views and 5,000 comments because people were like thank you for opening up and being honest and really showing some vulnerability because in that moment in time I was fine the next day I worked out and I just thought I got back in the moment but when you feel like you know you're going backwards and you don't know how long it's going to go on for and you're not being able to see your friends and family it's this feeling of disconnection that is so important and I, I talk about this with everyone that you need to be communicating with people you need to be chatting to your family and friends and and, you know doing your facetimes and your whatsapps and whatever because you don't want to have these feelings and not talk about it because then it all starts to feel really real and really way more intense whereas if you all feel like you've got the same emotions going on it evens things out a little bit and you realize that actually you're not alone basically and I feel the same and I think it was quite a nice message for people to hear totally it's funny isn't it because when people say oh you've got to talk you sort of think that's to alleviate it and get it off your chest but actually kind of what you're looking for is someone to go no me too I felt like that as well or I was on antidepressants and you know this happened to me there was a time in my life and with exactly that word connection I did a panel obviously over remotely with NHS recently in the psychosis unit with like 20 people that had all gone through psychosis and the screens were all blacked out so I couldn't see any of their faces and um, I was just thinking actually no this is a silver lining that's come out of this because these people might not feel confident or comfortable going to a kind of community hall or whatever or an office space to kind of sit there at a conference or a panel being in that ring of people knowing that they're not alone exactly as you say that's part of it isn't it the shame is just as big as the illness yeah and it gives you purpose right so by you sharing your experience and 
you can help others so it's giving you purpose from all that chaos and whatever you went through like you can now use it as a positive thing and that's this thing about growth mindset like you had that experience and now even by doing this podcast you still want to share the message you still want to help other people because you want to help people that are going through a really tough time and that's a positive thing isn't it, out of this that you're going to now inspire other people that may be struggling to talk about it and hopefully get through it quicker Well, I guess just before we go, actually, just something I thought of, just the importance of, I guess, men in particular with sport and physicality. There is some link here, isn't there, between mental health and the physicality, that kind of yearning to express yourself in a physical way. There must be some sort of connection there where we can do more to make sure that boys are young guys in particular are joining the dots there. Well, as a kid, I mean, I was 16 when I first joined the gym, but before that, I was like always playing sport, always running around. I was always doing exercise and that was my therapy. I, I didn't have counseling, but I know for a fact that I was angry and I was stressed and I was disappointed in things. And But I always had fitness as a main, like it was like the pillar of my life that has always been there. Like when I just needed to distract myself and forget about things. And so I've, I've used that as an adult, even now, like if I'm having a stressful day, I do anything, even if it's like 20 minutes on the bike or I go for a walk with, with Marley or I do something physical and move my body it's almost always always the hardest right for people that suffer with um anxiety and depression it's like the last thing they want to do is exercise but it's trying to get yourself up doing something and then 10 minutes becomes 15 and then 20 and you start to feel actually you sort of go on that journey of like feeling quite flat and you pick up your energy by the end of it the motivation is at the end of a workout it's never at the start how you're going to feel is at the end like the motivation is waiting for you at the end of a workout that's when you feel proud that's when you feel good and you feel clear and all that like stress and whatever you might have been feeling everything feels a little bit easier doesn't it like after you've done a workout you sort of aren't as worked up and you don't feel like decisions are as difficult so it's just trying your hardest if you struggle to just do something like get outside go for a walk with the dog whatever it may be that will change your optimism in the way you see the see the world i think movement is medicine one of the pamphlets I got given after I was unwell was like of a mum in a swimming pool with a swimming costume, you know, with her baby in the, in the shallow end of a swimming pool. Get out there, get active. And I remember that depressed me so much because I was like, that's still not for me. Physically, I can't actually go swimming with a baby when I've got a baby on my own. Like, what's the difference between standing there or standing in front of the TV? And then there is that such pressure of expectation of, you know, your body bouncing back and feeling like you have to, as you say. I love the idea of the motivation being at the other end. But I really feel it's a catch-22 because it's like the exercise will make you feel so much better. But it's just getting to that point where you don't feel good about yourself. The last thing you want to do is parade your body that just feels like it's been beaten up psychologically, emotionally and physically around the park where you go every day where you feel maybe imprisoned, where you've been pushing this newborn and the days seem to turn into nights and all the rest of it. If we know that goal is at the end and it's as you said, that's what I really found refreshing about your message is that it can be five minutes jumping up and down, finding ways to do this with a baby as well. I just think that is something, there is a kind of gap there without it coming across as patronising or lecturing. Yeah, any movement is good. So if you don't want to do hit training and run up and down doing burpees and stuff, you can, you know, go for a jog, go for a ride, you know, anything, anything, you, any movement is good for you. And so it's not about saying you have to do hit training and like, especially for after you've had a child, like you, you can take it much easier, but it's about trying to think of it as like rebuilding your strength and your 
mental resilience rather than like trying to lose weight or change your skin or change your you know your thighs and get the gap and all that it's like focus on the mental health benefits and the, the energy that gives you and then that will be the thing that keeps you coming back that will be the long-term motivation as opposed to like just body image and looking a certain way i think you need to think more about the intrinsic things that you can't see really i always think if it takes you know sort of 10 months to make a baby it's probably going to take 10 months to unmake that in your body you know to give your body that chance to kind of recoup and find out settle back down again Thank you so much for giving us your time. You've made your parents proud. Oh, thank you. Well, I've, I've, been, I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank, yeah, thanks for getting my perspective. And I hope that, you know, um, your podcast does really well and everyone really finds it valuable and useful. So best of luck and um, thanks for having me on as a guest. Thank you so much, Joe. If you have been affected by any of the themes in this programme, head to the episode description for resources and helplines. Zombie Mum was produced by B. Duncan, with original music by Hugo White. It was mastered by Rob Fincham. The executive producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. This is a Broccoli production. Next week, I'm talking to Candice Brathwaite. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. What is this idea of motherhood doing to women who are working class, who can't afford a pushchair that costs a grand and a half, who can't exclusively breastfeed, who can't afford strictly vegan food? Like, what is this constant circle, this this perpetuation of be perfect, be glossy, um, have a kitchen reno, la la la? What is that doing to women who come to social media in those really fragile moments and don't think their version of motherhood is validated.